that I don't know what goes on around here. Um, what you, today's the sixth, right? Okay. So next Wednesday, I know we're here, right? And then the, the next Wednesday is the 20th. Are, are we here the 20th? You, okay. <clears throat> then we got two off. Then we're on 1st of January. Okay. Because I'm trying to figure out what... Um, I think what we'll do, we'll finish Wesleyan stream in Protestantism tonight. And we'll look at... Um, charismatic the charismatic movement within protestantism next wednesday we'd be off to and then the first wednesday in january we'll start in on the cults okay probably don't know which one um may start with mormonism you know jehovah's witness there's um, we, and one thing, one that we're going to touch on, and there's some debate even within evangelical Protestantism as to whether this group is, should be considered a cult. I, go, I vote for them being a cult. But it's the Seventh-day Adventists that will be flooding our, our city next year with 55,000 people. Okay, So... Um, We've either all got to leave town, convert to ve vegetarianism, or do something next week or next year. But anyway, um, so I don't know what order we'll go after the cults. But anyway, <clears throat> okay, um, let's pray, try to pick up where we were last week. Father in heaven, thank you for being able to be here grateful lord for your goodness and faithfulness to you to us and the fact that you hear and answer prayer we're not following as peter said cunningly devised fables but we are following the truth and so we're grateful that we know jesus christ who is the truth and the light and life forever in jesus name amen <clears throat> okay, we, we've, remember again, there are probably um, four different main theme or, or streams of theology um, in Protestantism. And there's, um, it may be three with sub-splits, but at any rate, there's generally what's called Calvinism after John Calvin and there are different brands of that um, there's mild or moderate Calvinism which does not believe in predestination and all that then there's hyper Calvinism or uh, another term is reformed theology um, and that's the predestination sovereignty of God no free will on our part everything is determined by God whether you go to heaven, whether you go to hell, is all determined by God. Um, that's, that is a stream. And again, it's varied in its degree. Okay, Then there's Lutheranism, 
which has a few characteristics of Calvinism, a little bit of the bondage of the will, but not as serious as uh, Calvinism would teach. Um, and Lutheranism is a bit more, some people call it Catholic light, and it's not really that. Um, but it's more um, ritualistic or liturgical or sacramentarian, meaning the sacraments um, are very important and they don't go so f as far as Catholicism that the power is in, the power to save and so forth is in the sacrament. But um, there's shades of that, okay? Um, <clears throat> so we've looked at those two, spent more time on Calvinism because it has different streams. A lot of different people down through the centuries have fallen, what we would say fallen within Calvinism, the Puritans that settled America, and then the Baptists who came later, um, and um, they were called separatists in, in uh, England, and they were persecuted in England. Uh, they weren't part of the Church of England, so they had to um, you know, get permission to even meet um, unless they did it in secret. Um, but at any rate, now we come to, that we started on last week, what's called Wesleyan Arminian. Um, and Wesleyan Arminian um, is two words. <laughs> um, and it was Arminianism before it was Wesleyan Arminian. Okay? Now, there are people who are Arminian, but they're not Wesleyan. Okay? You, I want to just confuse you as much as I can. There are Arminian, which is really a contradiction, but there are Arminian Calvinists, okay? Um, not very many of them. You ever heard of the denomination called Free Will Baptist? Okay, Free Will Baptists are Arminian Baptists. That means they do not believe in predestination, of course, but not all Baptists do anyway. Second, they believe in... Uh, from the standpoint of having a free will, that you can also backslide. You can walk away from faith and thus walk away, lose, you know, we, some people will say, lose your salvation. That's really not a good term. Um, you forfeit it. You don't lose it. You deliberately, knowingly disobey God and remain in impenitent about it. You don't repent. Um, and if you, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. John, 1 John, we know that he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. And if you do, repentance is called for. And if you don't repent, then uh, we are, we end up severed from God, okay? Um, but, but Wesleyan Arminianism is its own complete theological system. It's Arminian in that believe in free will. It's Arminian, as I gave you the history last week, and I just don't have time to repeat it, um, in the 1600s in the Netherlands Reformation, Holland, um, who were predestinarian Calvinists. 
They were Reformed. They were hyper-Calvinists. And um, James Arminius, professor at the University of Leiden in Holland, um, came to the conclusion after 10 years of teaching university theology and so forth, that he didn't buy Reformed Calvinism, that you're predestined to be saved or go to hell or, you know, whatever, all that. Um, and so he, the, the king, uh, had a synod. They called everybody together, and they ended up exiling Arminius, um, kicking him out of the country, uh, outlawing anybody being an Arminian, <laughs> anybody that believed in free will, and churches that did, and pastors that did, they were They were thrown out of the country. Okay, um, spread to England, and then it was introduced to. Um, got into the Church of England, and uh, Church of England was, it has wings in it too, some more Calvinistic, some Arminian. Um, but John and Charles Wesley, who were born very early in the 1700s, um, popularized uh, Arminianism. They didn't name their theological system after themselves, but their followers did, and to this day we do. Okay, Wesleyan Arminian. Now, um, we went through the history, um, and I don't think we need to repeat that, um, other than to just give, um, 1738 was when John Wesley was converted. He'd been a priest in the Church of England for, since he was 23, which was in, I don't know, whenever. Um, but he'd been he'd been a, um, minister, a priest for 13 or 14 years before he ever understood what it meant to be saved. Ask Christ to come into his heart, be born again. Because how did you get into the kingdom of God as a church of England? Infant baptism. You're brought in the minute you're infant baptized, and then you go through confirmation. You're required to take the catechism. And of course, in the church of England, you, you were you were in a parish and you were made to go to church and your taxes paid for the church, which is true to this day. So saturated with Christian thinking and Christian religion. Um, but you're saved by keeping the rules and getting baptized and taking communion and all those things, okay? So uh, he was a stranger. John Wesley was a stranger to the new birth. Well, his brother Charles, I didn't give all this last week, but his brother Charles got converted just a few weeks um, before John got saved. And um, on the day Charles Wesley um, found, asked Jesus to come into his heart and knew that he was born again, um, he wrote um, the hymn, And Can It Be, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love. Um, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Um, and <clears throat> so he told John, of course, and then John went to a little Bible study on Aldersgate Street in London, and someone read that night from Martin Luther's commentary on the Book of Romans, the, the opening preface and Luther's, of course, um, whole Luther rediscovered 
never invented, but rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith. We're saved by faith. We're not saved merely by keeping a bunch of good rules, even living a decent life, taking all the sacraments and all. There has to be um, a starting act of faith here in which I'm, by which I'm born of God, and then I continue to walk in faith with God. Salvation is by faith. It's not by um, sprinkling holy water on you and whatever, all the rituals, okay? So Wesley got converted, um, and he and John began um, meeting in, with little Bible study groups. I wish I had time to go into the history, but we just don't have time. But um, England was in real turmoil politically. There were a couple of pretenders to the throne. Um, they were fighting over, and they, they would flip back and forth. They had not been too far coming off of Mary, uh, what's her name, uh, Bloody Mary, um, Catholic. And there was, uh, it was just ferment. It was a mess uh, in England. And um, they had a lot of, this is kind of hard to, well, maybe we could use uh, Catholicism. Catholicism has about 8 million, and I'm exaggerating, societies. They're used to call them societies, but, and we still probably could. The Society of Jesus, which is the Jesuits. There's the Franciscans. There's the Dominicans. There's the Little Sisters of the Poor. There's a billion of them, okay? But they're all Catholic. They're all um, what? Uh, uh, authenticated by the Catholic Church. They're under the Catholics, okay? That's probably the best illustration. The Church of England had much uh, smaller amount, but the same kind of thing. So there were a lot of little societies, Bible studies, groups. There were called, there were not, not a church, but people called pietists. People everywhere um, trying to, as it were, kind of grope. And um, maybe a thing we need to remember is when John Wesley was born, 1703, um, it was less than 100 years that the English people had a Bible that they could read. That was the King James Version. 1611 was when it was printed. It's a brand new thing, second generation, third generation of people who had a Bible. We don't even understand that. But they had access now as lay people to the Word of God. Well, unfortunately and typically, the more you read, um, people get their own ideas and you have little little uh, theologies and little interpretations of Scripture that just kind of multiply. Well, and if ten of us here agree, you know, and we're reading our Bibles together and we kind of think the same way and we meet for prayer and we meet every week or twice a week or whatever, um, they didn't have TV and social media, so that's what you did. You met and you read and you prayed and you discussed the Bible. So it was no big deal that those, those were little meetings like that that were all over the place. Wesley was in one of those when he said he felt his heart strangely warmed and he knew, he said, I'm reconciled to God, my sins are forgiven. Okay? Now, 
um, Wesley was ordained, Charles was ordained. And there was quite a lot of freedom, I guess you'd say. Um, they would visit a church, and of course they had their clerical stuff on. Um, and they would be invited to preach, or at least the, the, the rector of the parish church would say, you know, you guys want to address the congregation. Similar to what we see Similar to what we see in, um, let's see, who have I got here that could go talk to the security people? Okay. Um, um, now, where was I? Anyway, so John and Charles would be, John was a, or Charles was an incredible um, musician. Okay. Um, they would be invited to preach. Well, John Wesley would preach, and often he would get thrown out. Meaning, when he got done, he would say, "The you know got all these offices. You got the canon, the rector, the you know I don't even understand all these terms, but their roles, they, the dean of the cathedral, all this." They would say after you know he got done preaching, uh, "Don't ever come here again." Um, we won't allow you to speak anymore. Why? Well, it brings us to um, his theology. Um, he believed, there, here, here are at least, I think I would say four, maybe four major Wesleyan doctrines. And, and in case you don't know, most of you probably do, the, the whole Wesleyan movement resulted in the Methodist Church. And the Methodist Church has, I can't tell you how many offspring, um, denominations and so forth that uh, the Methodist Church um, spawned. Okay? Now, here's, here um, to try to sum it up would be four main doctrines that <clears throat> that Wesley, Wesleyan Arminianism is based on. Um, first of all, there's a theory, not a theory, I guess a doctrine of authority. Um, and this one sort of doesn't count. But is how do you come to theology? How do you figure out correct theology? There's a hierarchy of authorities. F highest, Scripture. Now, you might say, you know, that's good enough. There is a, there, there is a denomination, and maybe some of you know it, um, called the Church of Christ, and that's the, the non-music side of the Church of Christ. But often they'll have a sign, um, no creed but the Bible. On the surface, it sounds really great, okay? But it's absolutely, in a sense, it's absolutely un meaningless, how do you interpret the Bible? Okay. Who says in here, maybe we've got ten different ideas what um, several verses mean or a teaching in the Scripture means. Who gets, who gets to win? Okay. How do you determine what's right? <clears throat> well, second under Scripture is tradition. Now, not in the sense that um, some churches treat 
tradition, meaning we've done this so, so long, maybe centuries, that it's got to be true. Um, for us, in 2023, tradition means what did the early church think about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, conversion, what occurs in conversion, what's the life of a Christian supposed to look like, um, what's the doctrine of sin, all those things were hammered out in the first one, two, three centuries. Okay, So, for those of us in 2023, we go back and we try to say and try to discern what did the early church teach. This helps us know how to interpret this. Now, that isn't anything new. We, we, we fight today in our country over originalness, originalists or textualists on the Constitution. Now, we don't go back nearly 2,000 years, but we say, what did the writers of the Constitution mean? What did John Adams think? What did Thomas Jefferson think? What did they say? So forth, okay? So, um, we rely for guidance on biblical interpretation and so forth. What did the early church, the closest to the apostles, think, okay? Third, reason. Um, we approach Scripture not with our reason as the uppermost authority. Scripture is the uppermost authority. We are taught and tutored by the early church and what those early church fathers thought. But we use our minds, and there's an, un, there's an assumption there. The assumption is that God's reasonable. God isn't wacky. He never contradicts himself, ever. So we end up then, by the way, we end up using our rational faculties to interpret Scripture, which is right. It never trumps. If I come up with an idea that no early church father ever taught, then I need to go back to the drawing board. Okay. And, of course, if I come up with some notion that is contradicted by Scripture, and it only has to do it once. Then I go back to the drawing board. Okay. Um, we assume that God's rational and reasonable. And he, he gave us logic. We think like God thinks. Because he made us in his image. That way and that way only. Can he communicate with me? He's reasonable. He made us to be reasonable. We're affected by sin but we still have enough rationality that we can, con we can converse with God and we can think as He thinks. Finally, there's one last most unreliable faculty in this business of authority. Scripture, tradition, early church fathers, reason, experience. Okay, now, let's just take conversion. The Bible teaches, if you repent of your sins and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will forgive you. And He will send His Spirit into your heart and you will know as much as the sun shines in the sky, God's forgiven my sins and I know it and I can take you to where He did it. Okay? Well, is that, does that experience, does that line up with the early church? Absolutely. 
Is it reasonable? Yeah. Is it experiential? Now, there are a few doctrines that can't be, well, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that, um, that's difficult to experience. It's hard to experience the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? We can if we think real hard. But um, sticking with the doctrine of conversion, that you repent, Jesus forgives you your sin, he comes in your heart, gives you the power to stop the practice of sinning, okay? Now, I can experience that. So what Paul, the early Christians, the early church experienced, I can experience. That verifies, it confirms the reality of the doctrine of conversion. Now, does that make any sense? Now, it, even if it doesn't, I've got to keep going. In spite of the fact that experience is valuable, it's least reliable. Feelings, emotions are least reliable. It doesn't mean they're unreliable. But we better have more than just that. Okay? I'll get into maybe some of that when we get to cults and so forth. The cults mostly, I wouldn't say mostly, I think I'd say every single one of them. Every single one of the cults didn't get started from primarily Scripture or primarily tradition by any means, or primarily reason. Almost every one of them came out of experience, emotions, emotionalism. I had a vision, and there were 18 angels, and, you know. We have that stuff today. You ever heard of the, the Bethel movement? <laughs> um, yeah, they, they have, this is out in Redding, California. They actually have... Um, new scripture that they receive. Well, John said in Revelation, you add to this everything that's been written and I'll add every single plague to you. Jesus said that. And you subtract from it. He says, I'll take your name out of the book of life. Don't mess with it. So when somebody says, I had a vision, and you know, I was just out cold for three days, and, and you know, then I opened one eye, and then I seen an angel, and you know, you get, and it's just nuts. It's totally nuts, okay? Um, but there is something called, and I, I'll get off the subject here if I'm not careful, but something right now going on called ARM, A-R-M, Apostolic restoration or reformation movement and the belief is that in the lat we're in the latter days which everybody's thought that for 2,000 years but we're in the latter days and God has started once again he has resurrected everything that the apostles had meaning receiving scripture um, new truth raising the dead healing people all that stuff we're in an apostolic age um, other than being nuts and untrue, it's a real nice theory. Um, but they're packing churches, and I mean, this is this is this is the scene we're in today. Okay. Um, now, Wesley made much of what he called, or we call later, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. 
which is those four sources of authority. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. Okay? Now, now here are the main doctrines that Wesley preached that set him apart and sets us apart from these other streams of theology. One, um, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace, we could spend all night on it. Great doctrine. Now, I will, I will say this. Wesley didn't come up with that. Um, John Calvin rejected it. Um, the Catholics to this day believe in prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is a biblical doctrine. Um, the early church fathers to a person believed in prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the grace that God sheds abroad to every single solitary human soul ever. Enlightening us, giving us a conscience, calling our hearts, giving us that um, inner code of right and wrong that even if you're a heathen in the jungle, you know, with a bone through your nose, you know, I shouldn't steal that. And I need to leave his husband or, or his wife alone. Okay? Um, it's, it is primitive kind of conscience, but it's there. It's one of the proofs that is used by philosophers for a proof for the existence of God. Is the universal moral consciousness of every human being. There's a right, there's a wrong. We may be murky about it, but we have that sense, okay? Prevenient grace gives everyone a sense of right, wrong. There is a, um, it, and it's active. It accuses me if I do something that I know I shouldn't do, okay? It also enables my will to respond to God when he calls us and draws us, sends the gospel across our path in however way he chooses to do it. He gives me the freedom and the ability to respond to him. That was a doctrine contrary to Calvinism, which said we don't have that ability. So therefore, God's got to choose to do it. We don't have anything to do with it. Um, that then, the doctrine of prevenient grace, Wesley made a statement that sounds on the surface. Um, you wonder, but he's right. He said there's no person alive on this earth that is truly without grace. Even if they never come to God, they never acknowledge God, they never give their heart to God, they never confess their sins, they're never without grace because God has given a, an inner light and a call and a drawing to every soul. That is a, on that of course too, Wesleyanism is universal salvation, calls to everyone, whosoever believes, not predestined, not determined, whoever believes that God is not willing that any perish, all come to repentance, okay? And then he gives me the ability to repent. He gives me the ability to believe. So prevenient grace was strongly emphasized um, by Wesley. That, of course, made any Calvinist mad. And so, you know, they didn't get along. 
Second doctrine. This is not a, a, new, a new one either, but it's the doctrine of assurance. It, it is uh, Romans 8. His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. That I can know when I got saved and that I am saved. Okay? Now, for preaching that, which is, is that in the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Did the early church believe it? Of course. <laughs> But for preaching that, he was labeled an enthusiast, which in 1700s language was a fanatic. He's a nutcase. Um, and so that would be another reason they would say, you don't need assurance. You've got your baptismal certificate. So you're not going to preach here in this church anymore. You're riling up our people. Okay? Causing them to question themselves. Here's how sad. And I, let me just kind of, you know, make this sort of a group therapy session. Um, I am as about as thorough a Methodist, old-time Methodist, as you could get. That's who I am. I love the Methodist church. Well, I love what it used to be. It is beyond tragic what that church has descended into. John Wesley, well, here's one thing. Here, here's just one of a thousand illustrations. His journal takes up, I've got all of his writings, 14 volumes, takes up almost one whole shelf. Kept meticulous diary and journals and so forth. He said, he would say, June 20, you know, whatever, 1751. I went to Newcastle, England. And he said, the Methodist Society. He said, I met with all of the members, spent the whole week there. He says, there were 900 members in Newcastle upon the Tyne, T-Y-N-E, river. He said, when I left... There were 400. He'd throw 500 of them out. When they started out and they were young, they were small enough as Methodists, I've seen pictures. Um, they, they had tickets. And it had to be, originally, it had to be either signed by Charles Wesley or John Wesley, or you couldn't get in to their Bible study. Now, they called it a class meeting. Okay, and that got... And that's still in their language, but at any rate. Um, and you were to meet every week in the class meeting, and you had a class leader, and it was a layperson. And they, they, it was, Wesley has studied to this day, extensively studied, for his um, conserving of converts. Um, anybody that came to his preaching um, he, and expressed any interest in God he put them in a society, a class. And in their little village or whatever, they had a class leader, and the class leader checked on them if they didn't show up. Um, and they were to confess their faults to each other. They were to ask for prayer for each other and pray for each other. They cited Scripture. And it was the start of what today we, we, he has studied for small groups or cell groups or, you know, whatever. Um, 
But that was his invention, if you want to call it, uh, administratively. But at any rate, uh, you'd get thrown out of the meth of society. Now, you could get back in if you straightened up. But if you, you dram drinking, <laughs> you know, it throw you out. Um, it got down, it got, in, too, in some cases, people I've read where people were excluded, he, they were kicked out, put on probation for too much frivolity. <laughs> um, you know, too much joking around. Um, too much gaudy jewelry. You're out. Um, now, um, England had radical castes of culture, and the poor were desperately poor. I mean, literally, to food um, being between them and death. And so um, Wesley believed, you know, if you, you're, you, you claim to be a Christian, you're wearing a bunch of rings and you got a bunch of expensive paintings on the wall, you're not a Methodist. You sell all that, give it to the poor, and straighten up. Um, Methodism in England, but especially in America, was literally like a prairie fire. Um, I'll jump ahead of myself here. But in America, in 1850, out of of every three people, um, one out of three people in the United States, involved in any kind of a church or any profession of Christianity at all, one out of three were Methodists. It was, they were starting in about the 1860s, they were averaging two new Methodist churches a day across the country. Getting ahead of myself. Um, Anyway, the doctrine that you can know you're saved called the witness of the Spirit, which is scriptural. Third doctrine, um, most controversial. It's everywhere in scripture. It was believed um, in the early church, taught in the early church, Catholicism all up through. It kind of dried up, but they always talked about Christian perfection, which is a clean heart, a pure heart, holiness, what John talked about in 1 John, being made perfect in love. He said, he that fears facing God at the judgment is not yet made perfect in love. He said, when you are made perfect in love, you have, it drives out fear. I'm not afraid to face God because my heart beats like his. So there's no concern. Um, the word perfect is everywhere in the scripture except where newer versions where Calvinists get a hold of it. And if you, if you, want, if you find a Calvinist someplace, maybe they're, who knows, maybe they were, they're doing something bad. They're attacking you. They're going to take your car jack. I don't know. Just say perfect. <laughs> their eyes will roll back till you see the whites of their eyes and they'll fall over sideways. When they, get on inter- when they get on translation committees for the NIV and then New American Standard and some of those, they, you have to have, um, they, are, they have to be so backed into a corner with the original Hebrew or Greek 
to force them to write, to interpret, say, okay, that word is perfect. Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount, you be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And he meant love the wicked, love your, neighbor, love your enemies as well as your friends. And, he, and that's what, so Wesley talked about um, perfect love. But so did St. John. <laughs> and so did unnumbered great Catholic theologians before, well before the Reformation. Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, a number of them wrote extensively about to love with a single love. Love God with all my heart. That's scriptural. Okay. Many churches began to drift from that. It was a lost theology. Wesley merely blew the dust off of it and began once again preaching it. He didn't invent it at all. He just restored it. Now, that really sent people, that was very controversial because the whole argument is, how can you be pure? Well, if you're pure, how come you're tempted? Um, the doctrine was called either Christian perfection or taking Paul's prayer out of 1 Thessalonians, entire sanctification. So the doctrine that is peculiarly Wesleyan is the doctrine of that entire sanctification is available by the atonement in this life through faith. Okay? Now, there isn't anybody. Here's, the, here's yeah, I'll, I'll make it. Um, in all of Christianity, Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, I don't care who it is. They all believe that holiness is required for heaven. Holiness, heaven's a holy place. You're not going to get in there. There's going to be no sin in, in heaven. Okay. Everybody believes that. Everybody believes that we're not in that condition, obviously, in our hearts in this life when we come into this life. We're sinners. Um, and we're sinners because we were born with a bent to sinning in the first place. And when we reach the age of accountability, well, it expresses itself even before that. But when we reach the age we know right from wrong, we invariably go down the road of uh, disobeying God. Thus, we become individually responsible sinners. So we are sinful when we're born, and we eventually then following that inclination, we become sinners, okay? So sin's a twofold problem. Sin is not a single problem. It's personal, the things I do, but it's also racial in that the whole human race has inherited a bent to sinning, okay? Now, right now, you could bring in, I don't care if the Pope came in, or some Calvinist, or it doesn't make any difference, there isn't anybody, you got, you got to trust me here, there's not a single person that would have a single objection to anything I've said. Everybody believes sin is a twofold problem. We're born with a sinful bent. It is not something I did. I, I inherited it. So it's not something that needs to be forgiven. It drove me to commit my own series of sins for those I need forgiveness because I did them. 
but I don't get forgiveness for the bent I was born with. I inherited that from Adam. Every human being did. That needs to be cleansed. And forgiveness and cleansing do not occur simultaneously. Nobody except a little wacky group in the 1700s led by a guy named Count Zinzendorf. <laughs> okay? He taught that you are born again and purified from the sinful nature in conversion. There isn't anybody else that believes that. And he he's dead, so he's not around to tell us about it anymore. Okay? So let me sum up all these different streams in Catholicism, Protestantism that we've been talking about on this one issue. Everybody believes we're born with a sinful nature. Everybody believes that we end up personally sinning. Those are, we got two problems, okay? Everybody believes that we will not get into heaven unless the sin issue is taken care of in this life. Nobody, nobody with sinful hands is, and, and hearts are going to be in heaven. Everybody agrees on that. I don't care if it's Catholics. It doesn't make any difference. Protestants, whoever. So what happens in the meantime then? What about while I'm in this life? Well, all the Calvinists teach that because sin, we, we are sinful, wicked, scummy, yucky, filthy, creepy humans. Okay? Every desire we have, every drive we have, is all just sin. We're just scum. We sin and we're thought indeed every day. Sin all the time. Except Jesus repeatedly would tell people, go, don't sin anymore. I, I, I'll never get over being flummoxed at do they not own a Bible. He, John, he that's born of God does not keep on sinning. Well, we all sin all the time. I don't care what you say. That says we better not. And what's he talking about? Mistakes? No. Inadvertent failures? No. Sins of ignorance? Doing something that I am not even aware God's displeased with? No. It's willful transgression of the known will of God. I knew I shouldn't, but I did it anyway. That's the only biblical definition of sin. The problem we get into is when we make any mistake, any failing, well, the Calvinist doctrine of sin is any falling short of the perfect law of God, known or unknown. That's, out of, that's a Westminster Catechism. Now, if that's your definition of sin, do you see why they say we sin in words out in day every day? Yeah, but it's a stupid definition of sin. James says, to him who knows to do right but doesn't do it, to him, that sin. There's the proper definition. It's willful disobedience to the known will of God. Okay? 
Other issues are called infirmities in Scripture, ignorance, mistakes, but not sin. Now, the Calvinists believe since sin is really mingled into our body and our bodily appetites and drives and so forth, that we can never have a pure heart in this life because of all that. So we work on it and we fail, but we're forgiven every day and God covers it all because he knows we can't help it. And so you can't ever be clean hearted. Never mind the fact that David said, who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Okay? James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, using that Psalm 24. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You still with the sinful nature, the bent, undertow back to sin in your heart even though, even though you're a Christian. That's biblical. Calvinism teaches then because sin is so intermingled with our humanity that we can never be pure in this life. Never mind the fact that Jesus called people pure. Blessed are the pure. They'll see God. I thought there weren't any. Paul said, let us pray lifting up holy hands out of a pure heart. I thought we couldn't have a pure heart in this life. We can. Now, that's the Calvinist position. What really then, for a Calvinist, they would never admit to this, but here's the truth. For that theory, what delivers us from inherited sin that the devil polluted us with in the Garden of Eden? The blood of Jesus? No. The blood of Jesus can't do that. Death does it. You die, you lay off this filthy body that's always, you know, looking at women or whatever else, and then, then we're pure. So basically, when Paul prayed... <laughs> In 1 Thessalonians, I pray, he said, the very God of peace would sanctify you wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or entirely, or Luther translated, through and through, every part. I pray that he sanctify you. What's he really praying? That you die. Can't be sanctified till you die. So... Now, you might think, well, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, it is. The blood of Jesus is able to undo everything the devil did to our moral image in this life. He was manifested, John said, that he might destroy the works of the devil here and now. Okay? So Wesleyanism teaches that there is a second crisis in the, our path of walking. The first is when we are converted and God gets us out of the life of sinning. Okay? But as we walk with God, we'll discover, like Paul told the Corinthians, like he told the Colossians, like James wrote, 
we'll find we're double-minded. We're walking with Jesus, but that old bent is still there. It's subdued. It does not longer dominate me and control me like it did before I was saved, but I still feel its constant stirrings, and I'm double-minded. Double-souled is what the Greek says. And James said, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We're wobbly. Our walk with Jesus is wobbly. And we're up. Look at the disciples. They're a perfect example. So also are the Israelites in the Old Testament. God brought them out of Egypt, a perfect illustration of conversion. Brought out of slavery to sin. Now they're out in the wilderness. There is no God like this God. He's the greatest God there is. I tell you, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. I am so glad I, you know, I found this church and I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. I'll tell you this. That's the Israelites. Three days later, after they cross over, they got thirsty. There was no water and they said, this God brought us out here to kill us and our little kids. Is that a good illustration of double-minded? Then God brought water. He brought water out of the rock. He rained down manna. Oh, I tell you this, God's great. Well, then they got sick of the manna. And they said, and it says, every man, these are adults, every man is says, wept in the door of his tent to Moses. We want, we want quail. We can we have some quail? Oh, I love God's response. I just I like God. He said, you okay? What's the matter with the manna? We're sick of this. That's what they said. We're sick of this manna. God says, all right, I'll tell you what. I'll give you quail. He said, I won't give you quail for five days. I won't give it to you for 10 days. But I'm going to give it to you for not 20 days. I'm going to give it to you for 30 days. And he says, until it's coming out of your nose. You want quail? You're getting quail. And while a number of them, he says, while they were chewing it, God struck all kinds of them dead. Well, that's being double-minded. <laughs> One day walk with God. God doesn't pay out like he, we think he should. Then we don't know. We're, we're second-guessing this whole business. You can't make it as a Christian like that. You'll fall. You flop. You'll badly represent Christianity. You're up and you're down. And you're all over the place and you're inconsistent. Worst kind of witness we could be. So God wants to take the bent that's still there. It's like a bent axle on a car. Um, it'll, pull, it'll pull you off unless you fight it like mad. And trying to go faster and grow more just makes it worse. God has to give us divine alignment, and that is removing that bent from our heart. And he does so in a second work of grace called entire sanctification that he prayed for for the Thessalonians. Now, here's some um, things about that doctrine. It's subsequent to conversion. It's always after you get saved. 
and it takes you a while as a new Christian to discover that there, there's, um, there's a, a split desire in my heart. There's competing pull. It's after I get converted. It removes that bend. It's by faith. It is received instantaneously. Now, what, what does that mean? It's just like when you get saved. When we pour our hearts out before God, it may be, you know, who knows, three, four minutes, I don't know, or less than that. I've had dear souls bow their heads in my office and just pray the simplest little prayer, short, minute, dear God, I'm sorry, I've been a sinner, I've been disobeying you, would you forgive me? I believe that you'll forgive me if I trust that you will and if I confess. And that God doesn't say, well, over the next 30 years as you grow in grace, we'll forgive sin a week, you know, we'll work on the list. No, it's like that. I'm a new person. So also, when he purifies our heart, and we recognize that bent and that undertow back to the old life, I come to God a second time and say, Lord, I recognize that. That's a hindrance. It cools my affection for you. It makes me wobbly as a Christian. I'm up and I'm down. I'm victorious, and then I'm defeated. Please remove that bent from my heart so I can love you with my whole heart and my neighbors and myself. And as soon as I trust him, Lord, I believe you can do that. God cleanses our hearts. Are there any illustrations of that in Scripture? How about the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And Peter said our hearts were purified by faith. And it says when the day of Pentecost was fully came, they were gathered in the upper room, about 120 of them. And what did it say? It said gradually over all of their lives until they finally got to the Gillette Memorial Chapel, they were being cleansed. No. It said, and suddenly, that's instantaneously, the Holy Spirit fell on their hearts, purified their hearts. If you ever read just normal reading, read through the Gospels, the fumbling around and the up and down and the, we could never say impatience of Jesus, but how often he said, what is the matter with you? He expected better, and if Jesus expected better out of the disciples than he was seeing, then it must have meant he had a right to expect it. Yet they were subpar. And he told them, I'm going to heaven. Don't you leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll be the kind of witnesses you need to be. Don't you dare leave without that. Okay? So, this work of God, it, and it, it is not, there's no reason it should be any different than being saved. You don't see something. 
People don't, in the old days, which I'm glad I didn't live in the old days, but some of the old days, you know, there was whooping and hollering and people running the aisles. And God, you know, God's not crazy. You can believe God. We don't do that when we get saved, but we sure know we got saved. And when our hearts are purified by faith, we can receive that just as calmly, and, but know it. It's true. And we'll notice the difference. Wholeheartedness. Now, it doesn't remove the possibility of future sin. I still have a free will. Here, I have three reasons. There's, here's three reasons why there is no state of grace this side of heaven that we cannot walk away from. There's three things. One, we always have a free will. We never are without a free will. Two, we have frailties, not sins, not wickedness, but we are frail, we're fallen as humans. Our brains don't work very well. Um, some people's work even less than others. <laughs> Um, our judgment's not good in many cases and every one of us some are blessed with wonderful upbringing the majority of people are not and there can be scars and um, what's that well there's scars from poor upbringing there can be all kinds of things that hinder our thinking our judgment um, Lots of things, okay? Those are not removed. Those, growing in grace and getting over some of the scars and the um, certain ways of thinking that need to be changed, those, those are gradual. Maturity and growing in grace is obviously gradual. That takes time and obedience and faith. Cleansing takes faith in the blood of Jesus, not in time. Time doesn't cleanse anything. The blood of Jesus does. Okay? Now, we, we'll get out of here on time. Um, that is the, that's really the hallmark of Wesleyan Arminian. And that is the number one, um, that doctrine is fought after uh, it's fought over and is fought against probably more than any other doctrine. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you why. Look at it from the devil's standpoint. Um, look at history. Um, what doomed, we could say, at least pointed out, um, the final doom, whether it be island hopping with the Japanese or the Nazis, getting the beachhead. Normandy, you know, had the privilege, but also, you know, just the sadness, really. You see reels of what happened. Now you look at a clean beach. But the worst thing that happened was to Nazi Germany was for the Americans and the British and so forth to get a beachhead. 
and they fought horribly to push them back into the sea. When they failed and they had a beachhead, they knew, at least the generals, not Hitler was insane, the generals knew they were done. You let the enemy get a beachhead like that and they are, your days are numbered. Okay? The sinful nature still remaining in the heart of someone who is a Christian, walking with God, the disciples, lots of people. Every single church in the New Testament, Paul wrote to them about sanctification, about a pure heart. If you're the devil, you're going to fight hard, believe me, against anybody getting saved. But you're going to fight harder about a teaching that says the sinful bent that's still in there can also be removed. You're going to fight that harder than you fight anything. You lay low and hope nobody disturbs that beachhead because as long as the enemy, the devil, has a bent toward sinning still residing in my heart, even though the conquering Christ is within my heart, so I do not have to give in to that, but I will feel its constant stirrings and that undertow. Growing up in Oregon, the beaches had a lot of undertow, and you'd curl your toes and try to keep, you know, and it only that much water, it'd pull you out. That undertow is the devil's plant. He loves it. He bides his time. He lays low in the weeds. And all he needs is time and temptation. Another way to look at it quickly, I think, is this is, this is a really good illustration. The devil, for a Christian who's still double-minded, still carnal, the devil makes a motion and the carnal mind will second it. That make any sense? That's why it's got to come out. If we're going to be victorious, stable, consistent, growing, victorious Christians. Otherwise, we're flopping around. So that's why the devil hates that doctrine. Fights it harder than any other doctrine. Okay, we've got actually three minutes. Um, any fast questions? Yeah. I think we'll go ahead, go ahead and dismiss. Um, no, Dan's question is baptizing, sprinkling uh, infants. Um, adult baptism is a symbol of what has happened in that person's heart. Their sins have been washed away. So the baptism itself, there's no power in that actual act or that water but it is a proper public symbol that this adult is saying, I've been um, 
converted and I intend to walk with Jesus. Okay? So the question then is, then we understand adult baptism. Why baptize an infant who can't make a decision, who, who can't participate in that sense? Um, so what then is the reason for baptizing an infant? In my understanding and, and thinking about that, we, we have to remember, remember this. Um, Christian, Christianity replaced, I guess that's the word we could use, replaced two main rituals of Judaism in the new dispensation of Christianity. The Passover is now the Lord's Supper. Okay? Communion takes the place of the Passover. Um, and its frequency is more often. Jesus said, didn't tell us how many, but as often as you do this, do this in remember, uh, remembrance of me. Okay? How did you get into, how are you covered in the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Males, under penalty against their parents, of damnation on the eighth day a male was to be taken to the high priest and the sign of the Abraham covenant is circumcision and that was at eight day old eight days old okay now that child made no decision was made on their behalf however when they, Paul talks about, he said, when they got to the age of accountability and they, could, they were free moral agents, he said they can behave in such a way that their circumcision becomes uncircumcision. I mean, they're, out of, they're not in the covenant of Abraham. They're lost. Or he said, on the other hand, he said Gentiles who aren't circumcised, but they find Yahweh. They run into some Israelites and they trust in the Lord. He said their uncircumcision becomes circumcision without the symbol. In other words, the heart is what matters. The symbol, less. Okay? Now, so in, in answer to the question, why uh, can a child be why baptized when they don't even know what they're doing? that no eight-day-old Jewish boy knew what he was doing. Yet, he was, that was um, done on his behalf, entering them into the covenant covered um, through Abraham. They're, people, they're the people of God. Okay? Now, the reason we baptize infants then, and it's in the ritual itself that we'll read, it is says that this child is covered by the grace of Jesus and is innocent and is therefore a worthy subject of Christian baptism. And then we also pray, and it's in the ritual, that they confirm this act we do today of baptizing them. We, conf they, we pray that they would confirm that by their own decision at, when they get old enough to make that decision. So, in the sense of the symbol, with a child, an infant, we're symbolizing by baptism. They're covered 
in the atonement and the new covenant of Jesus, not the old Abraham covenant that was symbolized by circumcision. Now they are baptized that they are in the household of God. They will reach the age of accountability and they will sin and they will fall from that. But then they can be, and we trust will be, restored. Okay? Now, we got to get out of here. But let me just say one thing. It could, it could change everything. Okay? I was baptized a week old by my dad in the Methodist Church in Panita, Indiana. And I haven't had any holy water touch me since. Okay? I never felt any need to get baptized when I got saved at 20 because I was infant baptized. I got out of the covenant and by faith I got back in. Okay? Um, now, that's my choice. I've known a lot of people and I've baptized a lot of people for the second time. They were baptized as infants, obviously didn't remember it, had no meaning. I don't have any problem with that. But that's a long-winded sort of an explanation for why we, why we do that. Other, now, many churches, primarily Calvinist churches, um, but not uh, Presbyterian, a lot of those, they, they are also sticklers on infant baptism. So that's a, it's a non-essential issue. It's not a heaven or hell matter, okay? But it could be if we don't get out of here. So, <clears throat> Father in heaven, dismiss us. Keep us in the straight and the narrow way that leads to life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.